Welcome to IT Origins from Gestalt IT. Each time we meet, we talk to uh, an IT professional, luminary, opinion haver, what have you, and we dig into how they got into IT, what are their thoughts, uh, how it's changed in their time in IT, and really just dig into process and have a good conversation. Today, I'm privileged to have Allison Sheridan on the show. Uh, she uh, has worked in IT from uh, a number of organizations and has a, a pretty interesting story to tell and is the host of the PodFeet podcast. So, Allison, uh, can you tell us a little bit about PodFeet? Yeah, the um, the origin is uh, of that is these are technology geek podcasts with an ever so slight Apple bias. Um, I figure if you're biased, you might as well lean in and not pretend you're not a fanboy. So uh, fangirl, there's no funny way to say that. Um, but yeah, I have two shows. I have the NoCellacast that is going has been going on for 12 and a half years, which is geriatric in, well, not that way. Um, <laughs> it's very, very uh, long-term podcast. Uh, that is a lot of different tech stories. It's, it's uh, uh, mostly me, but listener contributions as well. I talk about all kinds of different tech stuff, about software, about hardware, Definitely more Apple stuff than anything else, but cameras, uh, Linux gets in there. We have a lot of fun with that. Then separately, I have a thing called Chit Chat Across the Pond, which is an interview show where I just talk to people who are interesting in tech, sort of like what you're doing right here. And then um, we have another series called Programming by Stealth, where Bart Bouchatz is teaching us to uh, program in JavaScript, HTML, and CSS. Oh, wow. And so there's really three shows that have been spawning since I retired, so it's a uh, it's kind of kind of hard. They keep they keep just turning into more. I'm not quite sure how that happened. It was fun to start with, and they kept. It's like successful spinoff story, I guess. It's the classic podcast disease, right? The only cure yeah. is to start more podcasts. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, can I ask just real quick? How you know? Uh, uh, I'm I'm reading your about page because I'm super cool like that. So, starting podcasting in 2005. Um, what was the did you did you set out to start a podcast was it i want to do something in audio how did that uh, get started i'm just curious well when uh podcasting first got started in october of 2004 so may of 2005 was pretty pretty quickly after that um my brother believed i could do anything and uh after he passed away at an unfortunately young age I decided I'd been thinking about doing a podcast and I could just picture him going, come on, you can do it. Just do it. Cause he would just do stuff. He wouldn't sit around and think about whether he could accomplish it. And I, I realized that I spent a lot of time harassing strangers in line at the grocery store, telling them stories about, Hey, did you see this new app? This is really cool. You need this. <laughs> and I thought, well, what if I talked to people who actually cared and chose to listen to me instead of being forced on? Now I do still torture people in line at grocery stores. Um, but I, my, my original idea was that I was going to tell you about stories I'd read in the Wall Street Journal by Walter Mossberg. <laughs> right? but, but, you know, had I really thought about it, I wouldn't have started. Um, shortly after that, I went to the All Things D conference. And so I had a lot of good reporting I could do actually on that conference. And uh, um, I did so I did four episodes, I think it was. And then I stopped and I got an email from a guy named Neil who said, where's the podcast? And that was the first time I realized someone was listening. And so I said, oh, well, I'll keep going. And I have not missed a show since I got back. I had that one little gap right at the beginning. And since then, I have never missed a show. There has been a show every single week for the more than 12 years. 
wow, you're making up for everyone that's pod faded uh, after two episodes. <laughs> and there's none of this, oh, best of thing over the holidays or anything. It has been fresh content, not always by me. I have some uh, uh, great people who step in for me when I take vacations and such, but uh, there's been new stuff all along. And uh, interestingly enough, Neil, he goes by Jumbo Shrimp, is still listening. Uh, he was in my live show uh, two weeks ago, so that's kind of fun too. So we have we have Neil to thank uh, for your years of hard work and dedication. Now, so podcasting since 2005, how far back does your IT career go and how did you get started with that? So that's not the quick question, but I think uh, maybe more interesting to your audience. I started out as a mechanical engineer. I started working when I was 20 at a company called Hughes Aircraft Company as an intern over the summer and uh, as a mechanical engineer. And my boss said, hey, you know, if you can work 20 hours a week, the company will pay for your college, you know, for your college. So I worked 20 hours a week throughout college. And then when I graduated, started as a mechanical engineer in that organization. Um, I worked for the same company for 35 years. And uh, which is crazy in today's day and age. Right. But the the first 11 years were as a uh, I would call an honest engineer. I did it. I was like I said, mechanical engineer. I worked on on gimbals and steering mirrors in an uh, optoelectronics organization inside. This is a huge company, uh, which later I got bought by Raytheon. Total company size, like 60,000 people. So massive, massive company. Um, around uh, 10 years, 11 years in was when the first CAD system started to come in. I was using pencil or sometimes ink on mylar drawing, doing mechanical drawings. And they brought in the first CAD system and they asked me, would I try this thing out and see if it was any good? And what I realized was as a mechanical engineer, I was a, um, a successful practitioner. I was a, I was a piano player, if you will, when I was doing design. But when I was using the computer to do it, I became a pianist. I mean, I was I could make that thing sing. I could get it to do things nobody else could get it to do. And I realized that what I was really enjoying was the, using the computer, not the design that I was creating. That didn't, I was like, eh, yeah, whatever. I was not as inspired in engineering as I actually was in the IT side of it. So I, I took a, a my only career choice that I actively made on my own was after 11 years, I went to run a, a CAD organization of about, I don't know, 15 people. Uh, in a different part of the company, still in the same city, a different like 6,000 person organization. So at that point, um, we had early CAD systems. I had people who who helped the engineers use the, the computers uh, to do the designs, you know, setting up the operating system and installing the software and helping the, you know, writing scripts to make it work. And I actually stayed doing that as it morphed over the years for, uh, oh man, like 24. 20 years probably doing that. And I raised up higher and higher in the company as that became a more and more important thing to do. So we originally we were just helping the mechanical engineers, but then the electrical engineers started to use the uh, the workstations and then software engineers did and it built and built and bit, built. For about the last five or seven years, I got moved into a classic IT organization. All of those previous years, I was inside engineering, but providing an IT function inside engineering. Does that make any sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and what uh, what kind of workstations were you using when you first started uh, uh, having a, a CAD show up? Well, the very first things were um, we had a Tektronix 4107 terminal, uh, several of those hooked up to VAX 11, wait, not, were they 11780s, I think? And uh, so we'd have uh, four of those hooked up to uh, four of those little monitors hooked up to uh, to one uh, you know, actual workstation. 
And uh, one of one of my favorite stories to tell, uh, I had developed a CAD model of uh, a very large uh, gimbal sensor. It was this giant optical sensor that went into an, uh, a, a, um, a 747 with a huge telescope. This thing weighed like 8,000 pounds. So it was this massive model um, that actually stretched the limits of the tool and which was really fun for me and everything. Um, but they got the idea that they wanted to animate this. They said, okay, let's make an animation. And this is like pre uh, ILM, you know, before star Wars animation, all that came out and we did not have the right tools. And so uh, the model was so big that on the, on the correct um, type of, of display on the Tektronix 4114 monitor, it took, maybe 11 minutes, I think it was, to render that one screenshot of it in 3D. And so, but, and on the 4107s, it took like 45 minutes, but they were also terrible. They looked awful. So one of the guys, one of the IT guys figured out that we could pretend, we could tell the 4107 that it was a 4114, so it would render the good image, but you couldn't see it. And then we would assemble these one by one. We would shoot them over to the 4114 where it could display it. And then we used an eight millimeter camera to take a picture of the screen. (laughs) So this thing was a, it was a nightmare. All kinds of stuff went wrong, but the final, the, the, it basically took like three weeks and we had people 24 seven sitting there hitting, hitting the trigger on the camera four times and then uh, rendering another picture, hit it four times. You had to just sit there and wait for it. And uh, when we got the, the film uh, developed, it turned out the shutter was not closing properly. So every fourth frame was white. So somebody actually sat there like with a knife blade cutting out every fourth image. And when they reassembled it, it was all out of order. So the only thing that let you down in the end was the analog uh, medium that you were recording. <laughs> well, actually, actually, the software that, to render the image got, got stuff out of order, too, because it kept crashing. So we'd had stuff was out of order to start with. So it was a mess. That is insane. <laughs> that was so- the earliest things. When you when you first got the first CAD system, I guess was was that like a light bulb moment? Like, well, clearly this is how everything's going to go. This is going to be amazing. Everything I've done up to this point is uh, obsolete. Or was there was there ever like a light bulb moment for you in terms of uh, like when the technology kind of came into its own? You know, I'm not. Um my biggest weakness is the my ability to prognosticate and you know people always make their future predictions of what's going to happen and i don't see the future at all i am completely um comically bad at it. Uh, I remember in the, using the CAD system, somebody said, well, we should talk to the developers. We need an undo function. And I said, there will never be an undo function in a CAD program. <laughs> <laughs> wrong about that um when the when the earliest max came out with their little uh, i don't know how big was that screen 640 by 480 something like maybe 320 i mean i know i think it's smaller than the apple watch screen now and uh i remember saying no one needed a bigger screen than that and we didn't have a need for color <laughs> okay I, I i now i take you at your word that uh, predictions are perhaps not your strong suit although you know oh. when you can design a gimbal in cad i guess uh you know that that's kind of a predictions are necessarily a minor skill. Yeah, not not terribly <laughs> to the, but, but uh, you know it it's so funny to me because people always ask me, oh, what do you think is going to happen? I have no idea. If I tell you, don't listen to me. <laughs> and uh, just you you know you kind of you kind of referenced uh, moving from uh, working in IT w- within your own little work group to or within your work group, I shouldn't say little, uh, to then moving into a proper IT organization. What was that shift like? And, and when did that occur? Horrible, absolutely horrible. And this is where I, I, 
I don't want to talk as much about technology today as I want to talk about a philosophy of the difference in the way this worked. When um, my organization was inside engineering, um, my the people working for me ended up being about 170 people. And our mantra, our reason for getting out of bed in the morning, the reason we went to work every day was to make engineering successful. That was the only reason we were there. That was the, we had that as our life philosophy and we all shared that philosophy. That was the reason we did it was to serve engineering. That was, the, I mean, it, it, there was no point in us being there unless engineering was successful. So if engineering wanted something and it was legal and financially legal, then I, my people were supposed to do it. And then, you know, those first two things were very important. You know, you can't just, there's a lot of rules about the way you can spend money in a military or a military funded organization. So you had to do all the funding correctly. And if you could do that and you could meet their needs, you should do it. And, you know, within the budget we'd been given. Um, when we went into IT, what I discovered in that organization was that they believed that they, they had a purpose in existing outside of the customer. And they wanted an equal seat at the table. They would say that. And I said, yeah, but you don't have an equal seat. You are there to serve, right? I mean, it, 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 there's there's no point in your existence if this other organization isn't successful. And there, certainly there are IT organizations where IT is the product that you're selling. And and to some extent, there was a little bit of that in our, our company. But by and large, I mean, if, you're, if your job was to take care of HR and IT – then HR is your customer. Your job is to do what HR is telling you to do. Now, HR doesn't have as good of a seat at the table as engineering either, but you are subservient to HR. That's your job. You're there to make them successful. And these people would just go off and, and tell their customer what to do to try to transform, to, to conform to what they thought the right thing to do was instead of listening to the customer, giving them what they needed in order to be successful. And I just so violently disagreed with that throughout the rest of my career that I was um, I was real pain in their backside. They couldn't fire me for some reason, but uh, that was uh, they ended up taking me out of my job and, and giving me something else to do, which I could get into, um, which worked out OK. But they disagreed with me. They felt that they were equal seat at the table and they should be listened to and they were, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I don't know. Yeah, it, it becomes a question of, yeah, what what is the business? What is serving the business? And yeah, ultimately, IT is a function of it, not uh, not a not a definition of it. Right. 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 We weren't selling IT services. We were selling military sensors, which were designed by engineers. Yeah, I mean, and you could, you know, that kind of gets into where, um, and not not to get on too much of a tangent, but I feel like that's why one of the many reasons why cloud computing has taken off in that it kind of it makes that very frank where it's, hey, this is a service, this IT service that you can buy. Now, obviously, it's not quite as easy as that, but it, it abstracts that away so that here, use use this computer in the cloud for business and it gives you back what you need. You know, uh, you, you don't have to worry about, uh, you know, maintaining a, a massive infrastructure or anything like that, which only is there to serve a business anyway. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought up that example because that's a perfect uh, tie in to something else. Um, we took uh, we had Six Sigma training at work and uh, I derailed the Six Sigma class for about 45 minutes. It was like a four hour class. And I, I derailed it because I was trying to understand the definition of waste. And uh, they, in, in Japanese uh, culture, it's called Muda. And I'd learned about it in, in this uh, in a book by uh, Charles Deming on, on um, lean Six Sigma stuff. And. The thing that I couldn't grasp that the guy finally said out loud to me was he said, you are waste. 
And I was like, what? You know, and, and he said, no, no, you are waste. Everything you do is waste. And the definition of waste is anything that doesn't add to the quality of the end product. Well, in engineering computing, I didn't add to the, to the quality of the product, right? I could make you faster. I could make you cheaper, but I couldn't make your design any smarter. I couldn't make it, There was nothing I could do that would actually add to the quality of the product. And once I embraced that, man, I was just like, so our job is to not exist. You know, and, and, and the cloud computing thing is a perfect example. When I left, cloud, the whole concept of cloud computing and being able to, you know, flip on a server at, at uh, you know, um, DigitalOcean, you know, flick a switch, you've got a server running, that existed. And yet it was f a four-month process to acquire a server inside our organization because they were so tied down to their, to their processes that they couldn't see past it to a way to do it where you didn't, weren't involved in the process at all. Why does a computer have to be acquired at all? There's plenty of them out there, right? And, and so without understanding and believing that your, your function is waste, you can't get rid of it until you understand that. You can't make it go away. And if you're good at making stuff go away, you don't get fired. You're the one they keep around because you make stuff go away. I, I do wonder is, do you think some of that lack of uh, agility to use, uh, you know, a common buzzword in IT now, um, do, do you think that was a result of corporate culture or do you think that was mostly fed by, you know, uh, um, you know, being tied into uh, as a government contractor, regulation, that kind of stuff, or maybe a combination of the two? I, I'm just curious. Yes. <laughs> um, well, the the cor corporate culture thing was, was interesting coming from engineering, um, of the 170 people I had working for me, about three quarters of them had engineering or computer science degrees. Uh, nearly all of the sysadmins had engineering or computer, computer science degrees. And I, I get yelled at whenever I say this, it, but there are people who can be very, very good at IT without an engineering degree or computer science. But with an engineering degree or computer science degree, you've been trained in ways to think uh, logically um, to do controlled experiments. There's all kinds of training that goes in. It, it's not that you learned calculus that makes you a better sysadmin, but the the learned process is not just go in and fling a bunch of, th you know, change a bunch of stuff and see what happens. Go, well, it works now. I don't know why. Uh, but rather going through controlled experiments to figure out why and document what you did. Those things that you learn in, in college are, are a great advantage. Um, in IT, the cultural problem they had was they would go out of their way to hire people who had no, put people in positions of power who had no technical understanding at all. I mean, I, I had my CIO actually tell me, oh, I put her in charge because she doesn't know anything about IT. Well, that doesn't make any sense, you know. I mean, there were there were no engineer engineers who became uh, the higher level leaders in this organization, and so they really couldn't understand what the what the real problems were in our programs that needed to be solved. They couldn't they couldn't feel it. They couldn't grok it because they hadn't lived it at all. And uh, so, from a cultural standpoint, that was that was true. The flip side, you brought up regulation. Um, uh, Sarbanes-Oxley was the excuse they used for almost everything. You know, okay, so why do we need to buy a server in order to, you know, have somebody do this little web service, for example? We don't need to buy a server. You can do a, a you know, cloud computing. You can do this. And they'd say, well, you know, Sarbanes-Oxley, blah, 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 blah. You know, the little people that, that their whole job was to regulate you and watch the regulations. You know, they weren't motivated to make make logical decisions and say, hey, that doesn't really apply. We could, you know, we're, we're infer, you know, we're, we're, we're over, um, 
uh, compensating for the intent. You know, they didn't have that kind of motivation. Their motivation was to have these rules in place and then enforce these little rules. So the corporate culture was also tied up in that Sarbanes-Oxley nonsense. I'm not saying Sarbanes-Oxley is nonsense. I'm saying the way they applied it was. I'm I'm familiar with Sarbanes-Oxley. What does that specifically – I mean, I'm assuming it's – some it, onerous regulation. Yeah, it, it came into play, I think, um, actually, if I was going to quote it, I should probably have come up with it here. Um, it, it, I think it came in after uh, Enron, oh. uh, Sarbanes-Oxley Act of 2002, Public Company Accounting Reform and Investor Protection Act. So it has to do with not wasting people's money. But uh, there was okay. so much extra money trying to do that. And and uh, in accounting, there's a, a term um, called a material amount of money. If it costs you more money to apply the rule than to not do the rule correctly, then you're not supposed to waste the money. In, in, in the, you know, I'm being very, very general in that. But there are cases where you know to bill this properly would cost me $5,000 and the bill is $100. Well, I'm not supposed to apply it appropriately in that case. Somebody who knows this is probably going to write into you and go, she's full of stuff. <laughs> That's the way we apply it. But these guys had no concept of that. And and uh, um, the the other thing in, in terms of a, a, a concept, at the time that uh, I was, you know, mid-career, I worked for an engineering boss who did not understand that IT was a career. He looked at my staff and he said, well, why do you have so many engineers? Because they make really good sysadmins. He says, yeah, but that, that guy right there, he's an electrical engineer. We should get him a job in electrical engineering. He's like, yeah, but he chose this. And he's very, very good at it. And we need people to do this. And he says, no, we don't. <laughs> so that was that was an even harder one to sell in some ways. That that does get to a very interesting point of when, when you're in the room, when they b- first bring in the computers, uh, it, that does take a, a shift to uh, it, both, you know, uh, on the ground and in terms of management to realize, you know, fundamentally that changes a number of things. When do you think it changed from that IT was a concern in and of itself, uh, I guess, within your organization? Like when that when that when that manager wasn't saying, why do you have all these engineers uh, on your staff? Or was there ever a time? He was just crazy uh, <laughs> or evil. He made me cry a lot. Um, you know, it was such a general slow movement. Mm-hmm. You know, it didn't uh, it, it, it. It's tough because if you don't look at it as a career and, and make it stand alone, then it's hard to keep people in the field who are good at it. Because you don't end up getting raises. So if you've got five sysadmins in an organization with 20 uh, electrical engineers and the 20 electrical engineers are actually adding quality to the end product and benefiting the end customer, who are you going to give the raises to? You know, even if the sysadmin is the best sysadmin out there and just, you know, runs circles around everybody else and makes everything hum, they're still not going to get the great raises. They're not going to get the promotions. So separating IT out into its own organization had benefits in terms of career path and keeping the right kind of people working. But it seems to me there's got to be a way to keep the philosophy the same of you live and breathe for this organization's success and you aren't the standalone product. Yeah, so I know it, 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 my favorite story, not the question you asked, but I don't know the answer to that question. <laughs> Well, it it is very interesting, you know, like you said, uh, making it a, a formal department exactly has implications for, for career aspirations, but then it also introduces a certain defensiveness, right? 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Would you say that was the the biggest change in IT since you you started your career? That kind of uh, departmentalization, or or how how would you uh, uh, frame that? Yeah, I mean that was. Uh, you know, <laughs> I can tell the whole dirty story here, but it was um, it was a very these people were not real bright about how they did things. They they didn't want me doing this job anymore because I was a pain in their backside, as I mentioned, because I disagreed philosophically with everything they said. But the way they got rid of me is they uh, I was at a conference and while I was at the conference, they took me out of my job. And um, I know this is going to sound vain, but it's the absolute truth. Uh, I was a beloved leader. I mean, I'd been leading this organization forever and, you know, maybe it's a Stockholm syndrome, but they loved me. And uh, they took me out of the job while I was gone. Had they made me sit in the front row nodding and going two thumbs up, this is the greatest decision ever what you're doing for the organization, you know, they might have had a chance of succeeding. But because they did it that way, it was like a coup. And I'm actually not exaggerating that when I retired, which was probably five or seven years after I was taken out of that job, to that day, people were still saying, well, back when Allison was in charge. Wow. It's like if you wanted to design the dumbest way to take somebody out of a position who had been the leader for a long time, they they managed to find the absolute worst way. Um, what was interesting, though, so they they took me out of that job being the leader of all these people. And they split it up and they did all kinds of other stupid things. But to me, they at first they gave me nothing to do. And then they said uh, – uh, and, and I'm actually rather proud of what I did at that point. Um, there was a, a group working for me who handled um, – not creating purchase orders, but but getting gathering requirements from the end customers on what we needed to buy them, and then and then getting them into the system to to buy what we needed from our third party outsourcer, which is a whole other plot line. Um, <laughs> But anyway, these people were really, really busy, and they had, they did uh, software maintenance agreements. And the maintenance agreements are on pieces of software that say sixty thousand dollar applications that we would run. Uh, really, really expensive software, and the and the maintenance agreements were fifteen percent of that fee. And so we would try as hard as we could to minimize those numbers because that was you know was a, probably our single biggest expense other than people. And these people were really busy. It was I forget if it was year end or whatever. It was just they had a ton of work to do. So my bosses took my job away. I walked down the hall and I asked, what can I do to help? And I started working for one of my employees. I just, I mean, I had the skills, I had the talent, I understood what the problem was because she worked for me. So I, j I literally picked, literally, I figuratively picked up a broom and started to sweep rather than just sit there and cry in my beer and, and do nothing. And I, I was kind of proud of that, that I, I just started working, you know, at whatever I could find that I could do. Um, but after that, they said, you know, go do that social media thing you're always talking about. It's like, what do you mean go do that social media thing? I'm inside of a, of a government contractor with, you know, all kinds of strict rules about what's secret information, that sort of stuff. What do you mean go do that? Uh, and it turned out around that time, people were thinking maybe we needed social media inside the company. And we acquired a product uh, from uh, Lotus, from IBM, uh, called Lotus Connections. They eventually dropped the word Lotus because everybody hates Lotus Notes, but it wasn't. <laughs> it was nothing like Lotus Notes, but it was a um, it was a real interesting platform. It had blogs and wikis and um, discussion forums, and you had a like a wall you could write on and do status updates and stuff. And I ended up becoming the champion for that in in the company. And 
you know, at first I was just like, okay, I used to run an organization of 170 people. We made all these engineers work and get all this real work done. And now I'm doing things like Facebook, but inside the company, you know, and I, it was, I, I never felt like the work was as important. But on the other hand, I think the work we did to, to stand that up did have a huge advantage because when you're in a company of 60,000 people, you know somebody else in the company is solving the same kind of problem you're solving, right? Somebody is running into that, but we don't know each other because we're 60,000 people and we're across you know, every state, but I think Montana, something like that. And so by having this social media platform where you could say, I'm working on my ops review about blah, 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 about cloud computing, someone else goes, hey, I'm working on my ops review about cloud computing. What are you doing? Hey, this is what I'm doing. And all of a sudden people started helping each other. So I thought it was a, an interesting um, interesting advantage in the end, but it was certainly a uh, an odd way to get there. And uh, how long were you working uh, on the uh, formerly Lotus uh, Connection uh, project? Uh, probably three or four years, uh, but it was... <laughs> <laughs> I I don't know if you've ever heard the term uh, ops review before, operations review. Uh, no. I hope no other companies do this, but here here's the deal. You want to know what's getting done. So every every person at the lowest level writes up a couple of bullet points and sends it to their immediate boss, to their section manager, telling them this is what I did this month. Then the section manager takes all of those bullet points from all of their employees, maybe 20 employees, and they put it together into a section level set of bullet points saying what got done. And they parse out, they take out the stupid stuff and put the best stuff in, right? Now, all of the section managers turn in their section level operations review to the department manager. Department manager does the same thing, boils it all down. She, she takes all the different pieces, puts them all together and says, okay, best stuff. This is what my department got done. Now, the department managers all work for division managers and the division managers all work for vice presidents and the vice presidents work for presidents and the presidents work for the CEO. 60,000 people work on this every single month. And most of the time they spend it in PowerPoint, right? And it's just, it was the worst thing. Oh. I, it, philosophically, it wasn't the dumbest thing to do, but the execution was just so much mood I could hardly stand it. I tried to figure out a way we could do it in a wiki to automate it, but it, that never panned out. Um, but there was a reason I brought up the ops review thing. Oh, uh, in the last year uh, that I was working there, it was uh, it was November of uh, of the last year I worked there, and uh, I I needed a template for what this year what the ops review is supposed to look for look like, and I pulled up I happened to grab the one from November of a year before, and I pulled it up and I realized I didn't need to change anything I'd written twelve months before. Wow! It still said working on talking about, thinking of doing. I mean, it had no accomplishments in it. And the same things that I was battling then, I was battling at that time, 12 months later. And I published it as is and then told everybody I could find. And, and it was what it was, was a symbol of how much time we spent just, you know, a corporate bureaucracy beyond belief. I mean, the thing we were trying to do was upgrade uh, connections to the next version. And it, the entire total cost was $60,000. And 15 people spent 12 months talking about doing it. That's more than $60,000, isn't it? Wow. <laughs> and that was very, very discouraging. And that was kind of what, what IT was like. That I mean, the amount of waste. And, and I looked at it as, uh, Rich, are you in the United States? I am. And that was your taxpayer dollars I wasted there, wasn't it? Well, you, that, you wrote that check. 
You personally paid for that. And and I like and I would always say that to people saying, come on, you guys pay taxes. Do you really want to keep having this conversation? Let's just freaking do something. You know, it was very frustrating. And it was nothing like it was when I was in engineering where I could do the right thing. And as long as I didn't go over budget and I didn't do anything legal, illegal, I was I was free to do the right thing for engineering. So it was incredibly frustrating. So, so based on that, do you feel like uh, and, and I, I think I might know the answer here outside of businesses who running IT is their business? Do you see any reason that at some point IT doesn't move to from being a department to strictly being a service other than maybe for security purposes and specific applications? Um, I'm not sure what you mean by the distinction between being a department and being a service. Like uh, being a service that you can't, instead of being something that you need to localize within your business, that, uh, that you know, where, whether it's software as a service, infrastructure as a service, something that you just go out and like, I mean, like a cloud computing situation where you go, here is money, provide me end product with this SLA. And I don't, I, I want it to be completely opaque from me as long as it works and you guarantee, you know, certain protections and privacy. That kind of thing. So that works for a lot of stuff uh, for you know, a cloud droplet for a, a web server. But the, the work that we did in engineering computing was significantly more complex. It was, um, it wasn't just here's a desktop, shove it on your desk, type away, or or maybe it's a dumb terminal that talks back to another another thing. I think for office automation kind of stuff, and um, you know for web servers you can, but we were we were, for example, uh, we had <clears throat> excuse me uh, sensors that would collect absolutely you know, well back then it was probably only terabytes of data, but terabytes of data a minute. And need to be processed, or you needed to be be building a simulator of of data and a simulator for a, a, a sensor, and that's not a, a cookie cutter. It's being invented every day. You know, every every minute that the 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 sysadmin is working in there with the uh, the designers, they're actually inventing this stuff. It's not a, a software as a service. Mm-hmm. So I, I think a great deal of it can be, and as much as you possibly can should be, right? Because it's waste if you can and you don't. Um, so, you know, the shenanigans we did with some silly, uh, uh, you know, internal uh, social media thing, that was just nonsense. There was no reason to do it. Um, but uh, but for the for the real engineering stuff, you know, if, if you're inventing it, then it, it really can't be. So what was the last year that you worked in uh, in IT with uh, Raytheon? That must be 2013. Yeah, June of 2013. Uh, my husband and I retired on the same day. We uh, hired we're the, we happen to be the exact same age. And so down to I'm four hours older than Steve. And uh, so we started in the company, started about six months after I did. So we walked out, uh, retired actually at age 55. So I can't really complain about my company and my job. <laughs> <laughs> But you can't. <laughs> it's like any job, right? Yeah, yeah, sure. and and you know there was there was certainly a lot of good stuff and some spectacular people I worked with, but they weren't mostly in the last few years. It, that's you know it's it's interesting um, because I, I've kind of uh, started following IT uh, a little bit. Out, I mean, just around when you retired. So for me, IT has always been uh, this continual debate of. 
you know, uh, uh, talking about DevOps and, you know, how do you implement that containerization? And uh, I'm, was any of that was was DevOps even a, a word that you uh, uh, was a concept? I guess I'm I'm not sure. Uh, I heard I, the word DevOps right before I retired, and somebody told me what it meant, but I don't know what it is. Sure, it's uh, I mean um, <laughs> that's the tricky thing about DevOps is no one has a good definition of it. But basically, it's bringing uh-huh. uh, <laughs> that's one of those great words that doesn't have a definition. It's basically. Um, Prov- uh, from the way I see it is um, uh, uh, systems that are designed to give uh, developers more hooks into operations. So the idea being um, that you wouldn't necessarily need to go do, uh, for example, uh, a storage admin to get your allocation of storage and, and you know, how much flash storage can you get versus how much slow disk or whatever like that, that the developer, that there can be a system already set up that uh, will basically automate that and allow the developer to uh, move much more swiftly uh, on that. It, it gets much more complicated than that. That's like the, the rich, I'm dumb, this is what DevOps is version. Uh, but yeah, that's, it's kind of a, a cultural shift to um, uh, eliminating some of the silos between developers and operations. Okay. <laughs> if, that, if, if that helps at all. Uh, didn't have too much to, uh, uh, to do with that. Like I said, I, mm-hmm. uh, uh, I, I had heard of it as I left. And and I know the people that, I, that used to work for me were working on that kind of stuff. But uh, uh, it, it's not really where I, where I was working. Um, I'm starting a little bit because I'm trying to look up the exact quote because it's funnier if I, uh, uh, if I say it exactly correctly. You say DevOps doesn't have a real definition. One of the things that drove me nuts about IT more than other organizations um, wasn't use of acronyms that nobody knew. And, you know, people say, oh, terminology gobbledygook. In in engineering, there is terminology, but the terminology has actual meaning and the words are are substantial. You know, they're, they're real. I really felt like in IT, it was so uh, common uh, to, to hear people just use words. I mean, just the word infrastructure. What is that? It's not a real word. That isn't a real thing. I mean, that's this amorphous sort of concept, you know. And um, I, whenever I heard them say that, I would always uh, quote from the Star Trek Next Generation uh, episode, Dharma Congelata Tanagra. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yes. So for anybody who hasn't seen this episode, to remind you of which one it was, it's where, where Picard gets beamed down to the planet to fight this other captain. And it's not really clear why he's fighting him. He just ends up down there and... The two of them are locked in mortal battle, but all of a sudden this this monster comes out and begins to attack them both. So they end up having to work together. But the 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 other captain speaks. The data, of course, figures it out later. What he's actually doing, I think, is it, it, the guy. No, maybe Data didn't figure out. Maybe Picard did. Anyway, he's he speaks in parables. So the words are are English words, but they don't mean anything in the order in which he says them. So so uh, Dathan is the other uh, captain, and he says, "Shaka, when the walls fell." His arms open wide. Those are all English words, but they just don't mean anything, right? So whenever people in IT would use blah, blah words, I would just go, Shaka, when the walls fell, his arms open wide. <laughs> Next time someone mentions software-defined networking, uh, I'm going to uh, just yell out Shaka when the walls fell. Uh, I think uh, that'll be perfect. It doesn't mean, you know, Dharma Katanagra. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> There'll be someone else in the room who will reply with the right answer. And then everybody go, wow, we got to learn about that Dharma Katanagra thing. That seems pretty, really important there. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure uh, that's uh, that can be the subject to a book uh, <laughs> on uh, IT organizations. That's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. 
So to kind of shift uh, a little bit, uh, as we mentioned at the top, uh, you've been an avid and uh, um, uh, um, irrepressible uh, podcaster uh, since the early days of podcasting. So I'm, I'm kind of interested. We have a lot of uh, uh, listeners and readers uh, that uh, are definitely into podcasting themselves, kind of interested in it. So um, in terms of uh, uh, you know your, your podcasting work, um, I, I'm just wondering if you could, uh, you know, like what are some of your go-to apps that you use for podcasting, for organization, for, um, you know, how you set up your 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 studio, your workspace? I, I'm just kind of curious. I'd love to pick your brain on that. Oh, we got another hour, right? <laughs> nope. <laughs> we we, we can we can make it work. I, I really think my podcast is an excuse to buy gear and software to do my podcast uh, because it's uh, it is a lot of fun. Um, from an audio perspective, I'm highly reliant on products by a company called Rogue Amoeba. I use Audio Hijack for my audio recording. And um, with any luck, people will tell you that my audio sounded pretty good. I get a lot of kudos for having good audio. Um, I use Audio Hijack and a USB interface to a, um, a high-end microphone. So I don't use a mixer at all. And I, I do a lot of different things. So I have a high LPR 40 mic that's uh, an XLR mic, and that goes into a Shure MVI um, interface, which gives USB into my Mac. Uh, actually, we do a dock that goes into my Mac. Um, and then in Audio Hijack, I can do things like I've got an um, uh, AU Dynamics processor running. So I can't peak my audio. You will not hear my microphone peak. It is not possible for that to happen because I have this Dynamics processor that keeps it compressed at the high end and uh, and and also gets rid, rid of some of the, the noise at the low end. Um, I'm recording my end and yours, both with Audio Hijack, just in case. Uh, and I live and breathe for this. I mean, it's it's the best software ever, and, and it's accessible. By the way, I do a lot of stuff about accessibility on my podcast, too. Um, uh from a uh, big fun hardware thing that I just got, and I'll go back to software in a minute. I just got an LG Ultrafine 5K display uh, for Christmas. I was very good last year, apparently. <laughs> and I decided that uh, what would be really cool is if I didn't get rid of my 27 inch Apple Cinema display. Display's like four years old, but it's still going strong. So I might as well keep that. So I'm now hitting, sitting in a command center. I got two 27 inch displays and my 15 inch MacBook Pro on the side. So it's uh, and, and a boom mic coming over with my mic. And I've got my uh, Logitech C920 camera for my live show. And I've got it all going on here. It's just, really, really fun. You just need a hoodie now. And, uh, you know, you can be like a hacker in a movie. It'll be great. Betcha. You betcha. Um, <laughs> I use Mars Edit for my blog post. So I, my, my podcast is a little unusual. Since I do it solo, I am, I'm pretty good at answering questions and going back and forth with somebody like what you and I are doing. But if I want to tell a story of, you know, like this week I'm writing about how my uh, I switched out my Belkin uh, Thunderbolt 2 dock for a Belkin Thunderbolt 3 dock, which you would think would be unplugging and plugging new things in, but turned into a big, interesting adventure from a tech perspective – there's so much detail in that story that I write it out. And um, so I blog everything you hear on the podcast. There is a blog post. Uh, if I'm the one talking, sometimes I have listener contributions where they don't write anything. But in general, they do. And uh, early on in my podcasting, I had somebody say, well, Allison, why do you give it to them in a blog post? Maybe they'll read instead of listen. And I said, wow, it'd be horrible if they got the content the way they wanted it, wouldn't it? <laughs> I should stop. You're right. I see your point. So I um, uh, so I do blog it all. So there's an extensive blog over at podfeet.com that is every single thing uh, we're talking about here. So I blog with Mars Edit 
which is uh, a spectacular application. I use Feeder from Reinvented Software, which is uh, how I create the podcast feed. Uh, I know there's a lot of other tools out there, but I've been using Feeder forever. And Steve Harris, uh, while really annoying, is uh, is a great developer and very supportive of his tools. And and uh, it really makes it easy to to upload your files and and send you know send out the feed. And it's very reliable. And I, I value reliability over everything. Um, from an audio perspective, also, I use a tool called Alphonic Leveler. I just recently switched from using the desktop version to using a web-based interface. And uh, the benefit of Alphonic Leveler is that it levels your audio. Since I have, I do an interview show and I do uh, have different people doing recordings for the show, the audio levels can be off and, and you know, you turn in, you're turning up the, the, uh, the dial in your, in your car and all of a sudden the person starts talking really loud. You got to turn it down and then you can't hear them and you turn it up. It's really annoying. You will never find that with my audio because a phonic leveler brings it to, to the same level. And it also do, meets the loudness standards. And I don't know if you've heard about this, but there's a movement to try to have a standard for audio levels. And so once it's gone through a phonic, it does meet the audio, the audio loudness standards. So, um, uh, and the, the web-based interface does some other cool things. I could actually create the MP3 for me and then FTPs it up to uh, to Libsyn for my uh, for the podcast to pick it up. Is that a paid service? Oh yeah, okay. that's uh, it costs me for it, they charge based on how much content, uh, how many hours of audio. So I think two hours of audio is free, but okay. when you go two hours, the next level up is eleven bucks a month. I think that's nine hours of audio a month. So I'm only doing one of my shows through the through that service. Uh, Chit Chat. I actually use the the desktop application. I switched because the uh, desktop app will not preserve chapters, and I got a request to tar- start putting chapters in my podcast. So there's no chapters in Chit Chat or programming by stealth, but the NoSilicast has chapters now. Do you think chapters are making a comeback? I've seen a number of podcasts try to reintroduce those uh, recently, and uh, after years of not seeing them on anything. Yeah, I think so too. Um, I I just started getting requests for it and I said, oh, nobody else wants it, right? This one guy wants it and everybody's like, oh man, why haven't you done it before? I really want chapters. And for me, I'd never wanted to do chapters because I felt like, well, why should I give you a way to skip my content? That seems like a really dumb thing to do. And they all wrote back and said, no, we want to get to the content when we get back home. We want to jump right to the story you were telling and write, you know, take notes or see what you were talking about right there. It's like, oh, Never thought of that use case. I mean, I'm sure they'll still use it to skip content, but that's <laughs> yeah. It's 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 interesting that uh, um, I didn't even think. I'm just thinking about this right now. That a service like uh, Anchor, which is all about like micro podcasting, which I don't know if that's a thing, but they're trying to, is basically that. It's basically, hey, we're going to make tiny little chapters, and you can skip around and do all that fun stuff. Yeah, I tried to understand Anchor, and I couldn't. It, it's uh, it's a weird beast, but uh, some people like it, so they yeah. like to applaud things while they listen to it, I guess. There's another tool I'm really passionate about. Um, I realized a little while ago that uh, that I'm a writer. It hadn't occurred to me until one day I was like, wow, I've been writing a blog for 12 years that's around 5,000 words a week. That's probably a writer. Not whether I'm a good writer would be another story, but uh, at least I am a writer. And the other thing is I think I'm a teacher. And one of the things I really love doing is making tutorials. I use a piece of software called Clarify. It's from Blue Mango Learning, and um, they've halted advanced development of it. It's basically – it's finished. 
they're still doing bug fixes and stuff, but they've uh, it is a spectacular way to take screenshots, annotate them, and tell a story around it rather than trying to insert. You ever tried to insert a, an image like into Word or into PowerPoint and wrap the text around it? It's a real pain. Mm-hmm. Don't do that. Clarify does this for you, and uh, it's a, it's fantastic. So I have a whole seg- section of of tutorials. And some of those tutorials have done done really well. People are very excited about, but I, I use Clarify for that. And I also use it just for myself. Like this last week, um, there's a really arcane way I need to move money around in my HSA account, and I can never figure out where it is to make cash available, to be able to use the credit card, to be able to do the blah, 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 to pay for the insurance, whatever. And uh, I could never find it twice. So I finally, that once I found it, I sat down and I did a, I did a Clarify tutorial for myself. I'm not going to share it with anybody, but that's just now I can go. Oh, click here, dummy! You know. <laughs> oh, that's that's a really interesting uh, uh, use for it. That's really cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've just started to get into programming with Programming by Stealth with Barbu Shots, and uh, we went around a long time to find a really good text editor, and we've uh, agreed that there's no such thing as the perfect text editor. You just get more of them. Uh, but there's one called Code Runner that's really, really cool. Allows you to actually run your code real time within it without having to open it up in a browser and run it separately and stuff. That one's a lot of fun. That's probably one of the newer ones. And I've started to learn reg- regular expressions, so I got some tools I play with there. A lot of fun. Yeah, uh, that's that sounds really like uh, that sounds like it would make it uh, a little more accessible to someone uh, just learning. So that that sounds pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, tools. Basically, go listen to the last twelve years to learn what I all the software and hardware I use. <laughs> that, that's the other uh, podcasting disease is uh, the acquisition of uh, of more tools. Oh yeah, yeah, that's what it's all about. Well, I, I'm gonna I'm planning a post called uh, the Nocilla Castaways made my Christmas wish list because I realized everything I got it was like oh so and so told me about that and so and so told me about that. So even when I get listener contributions, I'm like oh man, I need that. It's expensive to listen to tech podcasts, right? Yeah, oh, and the worst. <laughs> so, uh, kind of uh, um, uh, more general, just kind of curious. Um, any uh, book recommendations uh, besides the Phoenix Project? We're honor bound to mention that uh, for IT pros or just in general for uh, you know uh, uh, books of interest. Yeah, probably the most impactful book to me uh, in maybe more from a management perspective was a book called "Now Discover Your Strengths" by Marcus Buckingham. It's um, it's a a book that was written by the Gallup poll people. They they interviewed people in all different kinds of industries, and measured their responses to different questions as compared to how successful their organization was. And they discovered a couple of things. And probably the the biggest philosophical thing I learned from it was the difference between skills and talents. So, I have a talent of talking, right? You can, or I have a talent for organization, but a skill would be I know how to use Excel, and and understand the difference between those two kinds of uh, things between talents and um, and skills helps you understand who to hire for what kind of job. So when I was interviewing somebody for a job managing the software maintenance contracts, I was talking about one of the questions I would ask was not do you know how to use Excel? It was how do you organize your taxes. And if I found someone who said, well, you know, I have this quadro pad and I write down every single expense and I write it down every day and I and I add it all up by hand, 
that's the right person, even though they never said they use Excel, because you can teach them the skill of Excel, but you cannot make somebody organized. The flip side is the person who answers the question and says, oh, you know, I just have a bunch of receipts. I put most of them in a shoebox and then I give them to my accountant. No, don't hire that person for that job. There might be some other job they're very good at, but not that job. So uh, looking at the difference between talents and and skills helped me figure out who to put in what kind of jobs. And and that that had a huge impact on me. There's a follow-on book. I'm trying to remember what the follow-on book was called. Well, I've got a link to the uh, to the book in uh, at Amazon if you want to put it in the notes. Um, but he's got a follow-on book where he talks about if you look at your strengths, then take a take a look at what you can do to improve the things you're really good at. It. And, the, and the example he gave at the time, uh, Shaq was on the Lakers and Shaq was really, really hot on the inside game, but he was horrible at free throws. And he said, so Shaq could could spend all of his energy and time learning how to shoot better free th- throws. And he would go from sucks to sucks less. But if he worked on his inside game, he could go from great to the most amazing of all time. And and so it, w- it was saying, you know, maybe there's something you have to do. Like, let's say you're terrible at giving presentations. You might have to give presentations for your job. Okay, work on it until you don't suck to the point that your boss doesn't fire you for it. But then really spend your energy on those things that you are innately good at. Those things that are your talents, work on advancing that because that's how you go from good to great. You don't go from good to great from changing what you suck to what you suck less. Does that make any sense? Yeah, no, it actually reminds me of, uh, uh, I'm trying to remember the economic principle. I think it's a relative advantage where even if you're not the, like the the, the uh, law was like, even if you're not the best at per- producing a certain good compared to another country, if that's the best thing you do, it's in your economic advantage to do that to the most that you can. So it's, it's very interesting. Yeah, and I think I, I just uh, checked. I've got the, the two books reversed. The first book was First Break All the Rules, and the follow-on book was uh, uh, now discover your strengths. So I'll put them both in, but they're both by Marcus Buckingham. Excellent. Yeah, we'll we'll definitely put those in the the show notes for this post. That'd be great. Yeah, yeah. They're a huge impact on me, and I read them probably twenty five years ago, and I still find myself talking about it to people, saying, "Oh, but what you got to do is." <laughs> but like I said, they're both by the Gallup poll people. So there's a lot of data behind it. It's not just somebody saying, "Oh, I think you'll notice I'm kind of data driven." But uh, anyway, I liked them. Cool. Very cool. Very cool. So uh, as someone uh, who does uh, the NoSilicast with an ever so slight uh, Apple bias, uh, what was the first computer you ever owned? My husband and I bought a Mac 512K. We did not have the first one, the 128K machine, but we got the 512K machine. It had had one uh, floppy drive. It had a little three and a half inch floppy drive. It had no hard drive. And uh, we we bought that and and really felt the world shift when we got that. You talk about did you sense a shift? That's when there was a real shift to us going, whoa, this is this is really something. You know that was that was a big change. Um, an- another big change I did see one time when I saw the future um, was we were uh, many years later. I think it uh, was on a one of the terrible Macs later on, right before Apple almost died, uh, but. We, our friend Ron and I started um, experimenting with CUC Me. I don't know if you're old enough to know what that was. It was from Cornell University, hence CU. Uh, and it was basically the first video conferencing. It was a video chat sort of thing. And I remember we worked on it for hours. With We were on the phone with each other trying to get it to work. And when we were done, we had a one-by-one-inch, uh, like, eight-bit 
grayscale image of each other and we could hear each other talking and we all went, whoa, this is going to be something. You know? That is pretty wild. To, yeah, for the first time to be able to do that. That's pretty crazy. Yeah, Ron lives a mile and a half away. But, uh, but you know, now <laughs> I, I've play dates with my friend Helma in the Netherlands, whom I've never met. But we get on video and we chat and we talk about uh, cascading style sheets in, uh, in web development. So, you know, it's, it's crazy that what we can do now. But we saw that glimpse into the future. The door opened a little bit to say, whoa, it's going to be so cool when it gets here. And, and it sure is. And you were like... We'll only ever need this in black and white, and it'll be perfect. <laughs> and it won't ever need to be bigger than one by one inch. But uh, <laughs> I think if there's anything I've seen the biggest difference for me is um, I don't go to work now. I go to the gym, and I see real people, and I go to Starbucks, and I see real people, and I have a couple of friends I do stuff with. But 90% of the people I talk to are people I've never met. And and like I'm talking to you, we've never met, but – you know, we're friends, uh, you know, Helma in the Netherlands, uh, Jill helps me with, uh, with, uh, JavaScript. She's lives in, in England. Um, I've got friends in, in New Zealand and, and, uh, you know, all over the world in Germany and, and most of them I've never met. I all, I've only met Bart once and he's been on my show for like 11 years. We talk constantly, uh, Stephen Getz and I in Canada, we talk probably four or five times a day, just about whatever, like, oh, it's snowing outside, whatever the conversation is, we're on chat. And so I have all these friends across the globe, but I don't know very many people here. It's a very odd life, but it suits me and I enjoy it. It's the magical power of the internet. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so uh, besides chatting with uh, people you've never met, uh, what do you do when you're not podcasting? Probably the biggest thing I do is exercise. And I grew up in a family that didn't believe in exercise at all. I mean, there was, you know, we did things. We went outside and played. But exercise, you know, regular exercise was not a thing. Um, but my my father had his first heart attack at 43. Uh, and I decided I didn't want to do that. And I didn't want to follow in his footsteps. So I started exercising quite a while ago. Um, but now I'm actually exercising twice a day. I go for a 45 minute run or elliptical at the gym. Uh, and then in the afternoons, I go for a couple of miles of walking with my, my poor dog. I drag her all over the place. <laughs> so I'm, I'm running on the order of nine running, walking nine miles a day. And, uh, I think it's like 18,000 steps. Give you an idea how many that is. When I go to CES, I lose ground. I don't exercise as much. <laughs> You're the only person that can say that. Yeah, and I'm always complaining, going, really? Come on, why are we taking a cab? It's only a mile and a half to the hotel. We could walk. Let's walk. And uh, they get mad at me because I make them walk, and, and I don't always succeed at that. But, uh, but I really like it, mostly because I want to eat and drink a lot. And well, so I have to compensate for that. Do you uh, use any uh, wearables or, you know, any uh, uh, self-quantification with that? Oh, you betcha. I'm all over the Apple Watch, uh, shockingly, and ever so slight Apple bias. Uh, yeah, and, and that's been real interesting. Uh, on the podcast, uh, Bart, that I've mentioned several times, uh, when, when we were getting to know each other, he was saying, oh, I wanted to lose weight. He was saying his blood pressure was really high, and he was only in his 30s, and uh, and. I kept telling him, I said, you know, you got to count something. You have to count calories. You have to count calories burned. You have to count calories consumed. No, 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 no. I don't have to do that. I don't have to do that. Well, I nagged him and nagged him. And, but eventually he got an Apple watch and he actually credits it 
with basically saving his life. He lost something like, I don't know, 80 pounds and he's like incredibly fit now, but he did it by using the Apple Watch to track how much he was burning and he used MyFitnessPal to calculate how much food uh, calories he was consuming. And he's done two uh, segments on my show where I, I interview him on Chit Chat where he talks about how it saved his life and how it it uh, gave him uh, the ability to survive. Because I mean, at 36, you shouldn't be on high blood pressure medication, right? And um, so I, I didn't get to that point, but I absolutely use it. I mean, if I look at my watch and it says that I haven't gotten my, I think I'm on 700 calories a day on my watch now. If I haven't hit 700 calories, I can see how long I have to walk with the dog. How many, can I take my short little walk because I ran this morning or I do, I need to do the long walk because I did the elliptical uh, and, and I don't get as many calories burned on that. And um, I, I definitely use it for uh, lots of other things. I'm all over notifications, answering the phone, answering text messages, um, uh, you know, checking what's the temperature. You guys, everybody listening will be mad at me. Today I looked at my watch and it said 61 degrees. I was looking at it as a woman at the gym said, it's freezing out. <laughs> well, we're, uh, we're over here uh, just outside of Cleveland, Ohio. So it is oh, how's uh, that working for you? 13 uh, degrees this morning and my little toy fox terrier is having none of it. Oh, I bet you. I, I heard in the news two days ago that 90% of the United States, uh, the population was in below freezing conditions. Uh, yeah, it's uh, so. Uh, yeah, I mean, 61 sounds very, very, uh, very freezing. Uh, freezing. Yeah, they were putting on coats. I mean, I see people like going around. I, I, I'm not joking. I mean, they'll be in Uggs and coats with fur hoods on them and, and gloves and talk about how it's freezing. I'm like, Really? <laughs> T-shirt here because I'm I'm exercising, but uh, but yeah, big fan of the Apple Watch. Absolutely use that use that like crazy. Love it. Would right. definitely drive back to pick it up if I forgot it. All right, and we'll get out of here on this. It's a big honking question. Uh, best career advice you've ever received? Okay, I have a really good one on this. I was uh, we we had a CIO position open because of the size of the company. There were tons of CIOs. Um, and the woman who was uh, the current CIO and who was moving up to be the big CIO of the company um, was somebody I knew. And so I, I called her up and I was talking to her about potentially applying for the job. And uh, I was you know, qualified and all. And I asked her, I said, you know, how much travel is involved in this? And she said, uh, she said, oh, it's not bad at all. It's only like a week out of every month. And I had a couple of little kids at the time. They were like six and nine or something along that, those lines. And, and I was like, oh, man, I'm going to miss 25% of their life. And I was just, there, there's no way I'm going to do that. So I called the HR woman to talk to her about it. And she said the most beautiful thing to me. She said, Allison, you're asking like this is the last choice you're ever going to have to make. I was like, oh, wow, this is a choice. And I'm making it and it's not the last one. Other choices will come along that I that maybe are right for me. And around that time, I started thinking a lot about the concept of choices. And I started doing a, a lecture series at work that I called Choices. And the the theme of it was to realize that when you make a career decision and every day in your career, you are making a choice to do things. And the, there's two kinds of people that I really disliked. And I talked about these two groups. There's there's one group of people who choose 
to pursue becoming a vice president. So they work every weekend. They miss the uh, recitals and they miss the dance concerts and they miss the football games. Uh, when they they go, you know, family go skiing. They're the ones in the condo still working while everybody else is, is out having fun. And then they complain about it. Okay, there was a particular guy I knew. He would refer to the Mercedes and the Beamer that he owned, you know, in his big fancy office and his fancy house and all this. But then he would complain about the fact that he missed all of these things. Well, you know what, dude? You you chose it. If you don't want to keep doing it, stop. That's your choice. You don't you don't have to do this. But the other side of people that bother me just as much are the people who worked 40 hours a week and they went home and saw their family on the weekends and they did get to go skiing and they went to the recitals and the football games. And then they complain about the fact that they're not vice president. Well, you know what? You pick that too, right? You made a choice. Do it and embrace it. Love it. Say, I chose this. This is the direction I went. And and to look at each one of these things as choices. And one of the things that really drove me crazy was when people, even people who worked for me would say, I have to work this weekend. No, you don't. There may be consequences to not working this weekend, but you do not have to work this weekend because slavery is actually illegal. You can make the choice to not do it. And maybe you're going to choose to do it because the repercussions are more than you can bear, but you are making choices. So always look at everything and, and realize you're making a choice. Make a conscious choice, you know, do the best you can to understand what the repercussions of the two decisions are, but choose it and own it and go that way. Later on, you may, may want to make a different decision. You know, maybe your your kids are grown up and now you do want to go ahead and pursue that vice president job and, and sacrifice because your kids are gone and there's nobody to talk to at home. I don't know, you know, but but find those choices, think about them, realize their choices, make them, and then shut up about it if you picked it. Quit your whining about the consequences. Allison Sheridan, thank you so much for a really great interview. I uh, really appreciate your time. This was a lot of fun. All right. Well, you can tell I had that one in the in the chamber ready to go. Okay. <laughs> Not that I'm passionate on that topic at all. Well, thank you very much for having me, Rich. This was a lot of fun. Can I tell people where they can find me? Absolutely. All right. Uh, the best place to go is podfeet.com. Uh, stupid name, but uh, but a great website and a great blog and all my uh, podcasting stuff. You can find me on Twitter at podfeet. And often on the Daily Tech News Show. Uh, yes, I, I am familiar with the, that show as well. Uh, and uh, remember, you, folks, uh, we have new IT Origin interviews going up every Thursday. Uh, it'll be up Thursday morning. Uh, so check that out at gestaltit.com. Uh, all right, Allison, thank you so much once again. Thanks a lot.